Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading today comes from John's Gospel, the fourth chapter. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is that it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading comes from John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew, Bethzatha, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to them, Do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Now, I'm not going to get into this in the sermon, but it's important to know at this point that they believed that when the water would stir up, the first person who could get to it would then receive the magical properties from that water, and that would then heal them. Jesus said to him, stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat, and he began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take it up and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But then Jesus answered them, My father is still working, and I also am working. For this reason the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling 
his own father, God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Okay, guys, I'm going to need you to wake up this morning, okay? It's been a little bit of a struggle for the last two services, okay? So there's no zoning out, okay? We've got to stay locked in today. Are we going to do that for me? Okay, thank you. I'm going to need a lot of back and forth, okay, to get through this because we're, we're going to be doing some big things. We're back to our sermon series, Church and State. I know, groan. Oh, no. Here we go again. And, of course, for those of you who haven't been super into this series, which I have heard just a few little rumblings that some people don't entirely like, just remember, this is important. This is the series that talks about why you're here in this church today. Would you rather be ignorant? Some people say, yes, I would. <laughs> so, Church and State, Rise of Early Christianity. Basically, each week we're looking at the documents we find in the New Testament, and we are asking the question, what does the church in the first century have to teach us about being the church in the 21st century? You guys got it? It's almost like you're here every week. <laughs> so, the second part of this series, if you look up on the screen, you can see that little tab down below. The second part dealt with 70 to 90 AD. That was the second generation of Christians, and we were talking about how this second generation impacted the church back in February. And essentially what we spent most of our time dealing with was the idea that these Jewish Christians, now what does that mean, Jewish Christians? It means it's Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right? These Jewish Christians are trying to convince their fellow brothers and sisters who are Jews to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now the fact that you are sitting in a church and not sitting in a synagogue should tell you just how successful they were with their efforts to convince their Jewish brothers and sisters to believe, right? So in 90 AD, and you can see up there in section three, we're beginning in 90, that is 60 years after Jesus's death and resurrection. So he dies somewhere around 30 AD. That's, we're just gonna use that for round numbers. 30 AD, we have the death and the resurrection. And then you have that 60 year period. And by the time we get to 90, what you find is that these two movements, Judaism and Christianity, they, are now in a place where they're starting to schism from one another. And in fact, the entire third part of this series, what we're dealing with is the idea of how Christianity, it developed its own identity as a completely separate religion from Judaism. Now during the first 60 years from 30 to 90, these two movements, Judaism and Christianity, they were intermingled with each other, right? Jews and Christians, they were kind of the same thing. But once you get to 90, what we find is that the differences between these two movements, they become too much to overcome, and they venture down separate paths. And today, what I want to do is I want to tell you the story of the way these two paths diverge from one another, where they begin to diverge from one another, and we need to do this by looking at the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John is the fourth of the Gospels to be included in the New Testament. Does anybody still have that piece of paper that I gave them all the way back? Oh, 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 we have some people. This is good. Okay, get your paper out. Get your paper out. Okay, so when does it, my little piece of paper, when does it say that the Gospel of John was written? 90 AD. Very good. Oh, so interesting how that lines up with the third part of the series, right? Okay, thank you very much. So 90 AD when it's written. You'll need it in a little bit, so keep it handy, okay? So, 90 AD, it's the last gospel 
that's written, which means it's the furthest away from Jesus's actual life. And if you've ever taken the time to read all four of the Gospels, you've probably noticed John's a bit different, right? It's a little bit unique, isn't it? It's not quite the same as all the other ones. And you can see this difference actually in what we read this morning. Now this particular story, it's known as the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Don't find this story anywhere else in the Bible. Like most things in John, you only find it there. Now, in this story, Jesus, he's sitting next to a well. And then there's this Samaritan woman who comes out to the well to draw water. When she gets there, Jesus says, so politely, give me a drink of water, right? That's what he says. Doesn't say please, which he should have. But he says, give me a drink of water. And this woman, they, they, it seems, that seems like a pretty straightforward request, right? Somebody asks you for a drink of water, what are you going to do? You give him a drink, right? But as with everything in John, nothing ever stays straightforward. It veers off the rails pretty quickly because as they continue their conversation, all of a sudden Jesus starts talking about living water and how he has the ability to give her this living water. And, and this woman, she doesn't entirely understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. So he attempts to clarify. This is what he says. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. All right, so that's his explanation. She still doesn't get it, though. Still doesn't understand what he's talking about. She thinks he's talking about actual tangible water that you can drink. And that's why she says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty and I don't have to come draw water here any longer. Because if you're a woman living in the ancient world, you may know that basically most of your day was spent going back and forth to wells to fetch water for your family. If somebody came to you and said, hey, I can give you something so you never have to do this again, you'd be like, give it to me, please. I would very much like that. Think about how much time you would save. It made me think of this today, actually, I have to say, when we go and we just go to a tap and we can turn it on, isn't that an amazing thing compared to what everybody had to do just, I mean, not even that long ago. I mean, we're talking only in the last, like, hundred years that we've been able to do what we have today where you can just turn on tap. It's amazing what we have. And we don't think about how much time it gives us. But, of course, Jesus, he's not talking about real tangible water, is he? No. He's talking about something spiritual, is he not? He's talking about how our spirits, how they, they long, they, they thirst for a connection with God and how he has the ability to quench that thirst, that longing inside of our souls. Now, if you didn't get that from what you read up here, don't feel bad. A lot of people don't either. It's a little bit convoluted, isn't it? I mean, everything that Jesus says in John's gospel, it's kind of shrouded in mystery. It's almost like Jesus is speaking in poetry. And that poetry has this hidden meaning behind it that's kind of hard to understand. Indeed, what you find, which is really kind of fascinating, is that even Jesus' disciples in John's gospel, they have no idea what's going on half the time. Like Jesus says something and they look at each other and they're like, do you understand what he's talking about? Because I don't have any idea what he's saying. And then they just kept going, right? They just kept following him. Everybody's in the dark. Nobody knows what he's saying. So the question is, why does John portray Jesus in this way? All right. When, which was the first gospel that was written? Do y'all remember? 
Mark, oh, you guys are good, thank you, thank you. Okay, Mark is the first one written. When was it written? 70, 70, good, okay. 70 is when it's written. So, it's written in 70, Mark. By the time you get to John, the earliest John was written is 90. It could be written later. But what you see is things take a total 180. When you get to John's gospel, in some ways, even though we're talking about Jesus' life, it doesn't feel like we're talking about the same person. When I read John, it feels to me like we're talking about a mystic philosopher, not a poor Jewish peasant from Galilee. Doesn't feel like we're talking about the same person from the other Gospels. And this is actually intentional on John's part. I want you to know that. This wasn't something that was done just, oh, well, we're just going to do it this way. This was intentional. John's community is very unique. It's very different from all the communities that have existed before him. So scholars believe that John's community, they exist somewhere in Syria, in modern Syria. So this is modern Syria. I know that narrows it down quite a bit, but that's essentially where they think that John's community was located. And even though John, Jesus' disciple, is probably responsible for founding this particular religious community, what they believe is that John, Jesus' disciple, is not responsible for writing this gospel. And that should come as no surprise to you at this point. We're at 90 AD, right? 90 AD, that's a bit after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so by this point, all of Jesus' original disciples, they're dead. They're gone. And so every document that we're talking about from this point forward, it's probably best to assume that it wasn't written by a first-generation Christian. In fact, it's probably better to assume that it was written by a third-generation Christian. It was written by people three generations removed from Jesus' actual life. And it will show in what we end up talking about. You will see as we get into these, there is some strange stuff inside of this. And you'll be like, that's actually in the Bible? And I'll say, yes, it is in the Bible. And it's because it's the further away we get, they're dealing with different issues. But let's talk about John, John's community. So who are they? Who are these third-generation Christians living in the area of Syria? What do they believe? What do they think? Well, the first thing you need to know is that John's community was very heavily influenced by two different cultures. One culture is what we call Hellenistic or Greek culture. And the other thing that they've been influenced by is Judaism. We're going to start with Greek culture. We're going to go to Judaism. Now, I hear it being very quiet in here all of a sudden. And so what that tells me is that you all are starting to get tired. And we're only, you know, 10, 10% into the sermon. So, you know, I need you to really come back to me, okay? <laughs> all right. Stay with me on this. This is real critical, this part right here, okay? Let's talk about Greek culture. So who are some of the greatest people in Greek culture? If you're thinking about ancient Greek culture, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Very good. Okay. These are the great thinkers. And the reason why these great men are revered is because in Greek culture, your greatest asset was knowledge. That was the most important thing you could have. And these were men who had just amazing amounts of knowledge. Now, those men, they lived a couple hundred years before Jesus. And by the time we get to 90 AD, which is a little bit later, right, Greek culture has shifted just a little bit. And they shifted in the sense that the teachers who garner the most respect in Greek culture at 90 AD are the people who are able to reveal the secrets of hidden wisdom. It's very important. It's not just 
people who have knowledge. It's people who can reveal the secrets of hidden wisdom. This way of thinking in Greek culture was known as Gnosticism. So that word Gnosticism or Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which literally means knowledge. That's all it means. It means knowledge. And so what you have to appreciate is that John's community, these were a group of people who were seeking the secrets of hidden knowledge. And John was written with this perspective in mind. This is why when you read John, Jesus sounds like a mystic philosopher who is really hard to understand. The idea is that John is trying to promote to his readers this idea that Jesus has access to these secrets of hidden knowledge. Now, where does Jesus get access to all this stuff? Well, actually, John tells you in the opening lines of his gospel. What does it say in the opening lines? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So where does Jesus get access to all these hidden secrets? Right, he's with God. He was with God from the beginning of creation. And so the whole concept here is that they're writing this gospel to say, Jesus has the things you're looking for. He has all of these secrets of hidden wisdom. You just need to follow him. Now, does this make sense, what I'm saying? Are you with me so far? Okay, because basically, this is why John feels so very different than all the other gospels in the way that it's written. All right, this leads me to the second influence, and that is Judaism. Now, we've talked a lot about Judaism, but these people in John's community, they were very Jewish. They worshiped in the synagogues. They were trying to convince their fellow Jews to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But then something major happens. Something big happens in 90 AD. Something huge. The Jewish leaders in the synagogue get together and they make a decision to kick the Jesus believers out of the synagogue. They come to them and they essentially say, look, you guys have got to go. You are literally driving us crazy talking about this Jesus guy. So we're just going to have to agree to disagree because we don't believe he's the Messiah. So it's probably best if you all go and just do your own thing. Now, you have to realize that John's community was devastated by this. They were absolutely devastated by being kicked out of the synagogues. And it's what spurred them on to write John's gospel. It's the gospel we read. And they are writing this gospel in order to convince the Jews in the synagogue who are on the fence to come over to their side. And indeed, it is in this gospel the first time you find the derogatory term, the Jews. It's used over and over again. And that term, the Jews, it refers to the Jewish leaders who kicked them out of the synagogue. Let's take a look. We actually saw this in our second reading. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. Now, if you didn't know the background behind this, if you didn't know that background, that he's talking about the Jewish leaders, what would you think is happening? You would think every single Jew is against Jesus, right? Which is not reality. That wasn't what was happening. In fact, when you read John's gospel, Jesus sounds anti-Semitic. He sounds like he hates his own people. And he's encouraging his followers to break away from Judaism. Now, 
I'm going to tell you that I think that the historical Jesus, he certainly wanted to reform certain aspects of Judaism. I do not think that he ever intended for his followers to break away from Judaism, to abandon Judaism completely. In my opinion, if Jesus came back today, I think he would be a bit disappointed that we are not still worshiping in the, synagogue, in the synagogues. That's where I think he wanted us to be. I don't think he wanted us to abandon Judaism and do our own thing. But that is what happened, right? I mean, we did ultimately do that. And so this raises an interesting question. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? What was the straw that broke the camel's back? Why is it that the Jewish leaders finally decided, you know what, enough is enough. You guys have got to go. Well, the answer is actually found at the very end of our second reading today. So Jesus, he heals the paralytic, right? And then the Jewish leaders come up to him and say, hey, you're not supposed to be healing on the Sabbath. To which Jesus replies, my father is still working and I also am working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. Do you see the issue? Do you see the problem? It's at the very end, that last little part, thereby making himself equal to God. John's community believed that Jesus was God. And this is the thing that the Jewish leaders disagreed with adamantly. They felt that this was wrong. Now, why did they think it was wrong? Well, they thought it was wrong because Jewish people, they do not believe that God can be reduced down into a human being. In fact, they don't believe that God can be reduced down into anything. You want to know why? Because it breaks the second commandment. That's why. Now, what's the second commandment? We all have it memorized, right? <laughs> Let's take a look at it, though, just in case you didn't. You shall not make for yourself an idol whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. So for the Jews, what they did when they looked at Christians, they felt that Christians were committing idolatry by worshiping Jesus because in their minds, God cannot be a human being. And who came up with the second commandment, by the way? God did. So you see why this is a little bit of an issue, right? Okay, you with me so far? Gosh, you guys are super silent. I know it's, I know it's dark. I know it's dark. And we're only 15% of the way through the sermon. <laughs> okay. So this allows me, having said all of this, to bring up a really important issue with John's gospel and community. Is it clear to you that John's community believes that Jesus is God? Yes. Clear. I think there's no doubt about that they believe that Jesus is divine. But here's what you have to appreciate. That, little, that list that, that's back here, the list that they have of all those books, what you have to realize is that if you look at them in the order in which they were written, John's gospel is the first time that this idea that Jesus is God becomes explicit. Up until this point, if you look at all those other documents, there are allusions to the idea that Jesus may be divine, but this is the first time that they come out and say it. Now, there's a reason for this. And the reason is that not everybody in the first two generations of Christians believed that Jesus was God. How do I know this? 
I know this because of that right there on the screen. The second commandment. What did I tell you the very beginning? This is the first thing I talked about when we, when we got into this series. Second sermon. I said, Jesus' movement, his original movement, was a Jewish movement. This means that all of his people, every single one of them, would have been familiar with the second commandment. And even more importantly, they would have been reluctant to break it. This is a reality that Christians often set aside. We don't like to think about that. We like to assume that all of Jesus' disciples were on the same page concerning his divinity, which is not the case. There was a lot of disparity among the disciples as to Jesus' divinity, and it's because it explicitly broke the second commandment. They had trouble with this. So what you have to realize is that when it comes to Jesus' divinity, this concept that Jesus is God, it developed slowly over the first 60 years of Christianity's existence. As Christianity became less and less Jewish, the second commandment mattered less and less, which allowed this idea that Jesus was God to become more and more prevalent until eventually we get to 90 AD when John's gospel is written and it becomes so prevalent that it's the reason why Judaism and Christianity have to split apart. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? Okay, now in saying this, I am not implying that we have to abandon our belief as Christians that Jesus is God. All I am saying is that in 30 AD, right after Jesus' death and resurrection, that Jesus' disciples were not in universal agreement about this. Some people believed he was God, other people did not. And that is reflective of our congregation, by the way. I've been doing surveys of our congregation over the last few months. I've been asking people, what do you think? Literally asking them yes, no questions on a survey. And what I have come to find is that people are all over the map on this. That some people in here believe Jesus is God, other people don't. Which is a reflection of what happened in 30 AD, right after Jesus' death and resurrection. Which begs an important question, though. Given that this was the case, what exactly were the universal beliefs of the Christians right after 30 AD? Like, what did they believe? If they weren't all believing that Jesus was God right out of the gate, what did they believe? Okay. Are you with me still? Okay, we're 17% into the sermon. So we're almost there. You're doing great. Okay. I think there are two things. Two things that we can know for sure were universal beliefs among the original disciples. The first thing I think you can know is a universal belief is that they all believed that Jesus was God's Messiah. I think they all believe that across the board. Now, you have to realize that there's a difference between the Christian Messiah and the Jewish Messiah. The Jewish Messiah was a man who God had chosen to lead God's kingdom. Was he God? In the Jewish mind? No. Christians, we have a different view of that. All right. Second thing that I think we can know for sure is that they believed that Jesus was going to establish God's kingdom. That's the second thing that we know. Now, I think they had different opinions as to how this was going to come about, but I think they believed this. And I will tell you that I believe both of those things to be true. I believe that Jesus was God's Messiah. I believe that Jesus was here to deliver God's message. What do we call God's message? It's called the gospel, right? And in that gospel, the most important teachings are Jesus' teachings on love. If you have not read those teachings, they are extraordinary. 
extraordinary. They are intricate, they are complicated, but they lay a blueprint out for us of how we are to create God's kingdom here on earth. Now, I have taken time in my spiritual life to memorize those teachings. I know those teachings by heart so that as I live my life, I can ask myself, literally, what would Jesus have me do in this situation? And in this way, Jesus becomes my Lord. What does that word Lord mean? It means that somebody rules over you, right? Like if somebody's lording over you, it means they rule who you are. And in that way, Jesus is my Lord. So by having Jesus's message, his teachings in my heart, Jesus works through my hands and feet to create God's kingdom here on earth. Now, I'm going to tell you that for me, these two things, these are the only things that I think we can be sure of were original to Jesus's movement. In my opinion, this is just my opinion now, okay? And for me, that's enough. That's all I need to be Christian, as far as I'm concerned. As long as Jesus' message is in my heart, and I am Jesus' hands and feet in the world to create God's kingdom, I'm good to go. I don't think I need anything more to be a Christian. And that's the entire point of this sermon today. I wanted to tell you where I draw my line in the sand what I think it takes to be a Christian. Now you, you may draw your line in the sand somewhere else. And you know what? That's okay. That's fine. The question I want you to answer this morning is I want you to ask yourself, where is my line and why do I draw it where I do? What are the reasons behind it? I just spent 25 minutes telling you about all my reasons, boring you to death, right? About why I think what I think. What are your reasons? These are the kind of conversations we need to be having as a church as we move into the 21st century. I've been having these conversations among the leadership in the church, and my goodness, Judy will tell you, it's been fascinating, fascinating to see what people have been saying. Because it's all over the place, and it's really, really kind of neat to hear what people have to say. And these are the kind of conversations you all need to be having with each other. What do you think it takes to be a Christian? And in asking that question, you may say, well, that's simple. I already know what the answer is to that, right? It's simple maybe to answer on a surface level. The first time somebody asked me that question, I thought it was simple too. And they broke it down and I realized that it's a lot more complicated than I thought. So take the time. Think about it. What are your reasons? And then I want you to talk to the people in church. Look around this room for a second, would you? Look at the people in here. Do you know everybody in here? I'm sure you don't know everybody. I know you know some people, right? I'd like you to go talk to them. Ask them the question. Break out of your comfort zone. I know it would be horrible to have to ask anybody else, like, hey, what's your name and all this stuff, right? But, it, but take some time. Ask the question. What do you think? What are your reasons? What do you think it takes to be a Christian? And don't write to me immediately. I know some people are going to be like, I'm going to tell you what I think it takes to be a Christian, right? You're going to type to me immediately and let me know. Have the conversations first with each other. Have those conversations. Because if we want to be a church that survives and thrives in the 21st century, these conversations are necessary. And then, once you've had the conversation, let me know. Because we will be a church that survives. We will be a church that thrives. And I want to thank you for everything that you all bring to make this place special and unique. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.com. For more information on service times, directions, 
and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.